This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi today. As we said off the top, we're keeping a close eye on the dispute underway between the QP unionized workers at SkyTrain and their employees at the Sky and their employers at the SkyTrain system. The strike watch is on. The union is threatened to walk off the job tomorrow morning, 5 a.m. It could potentially shut down the Expo and the Millennium SkyTrain lines starting tomorrow morning now does this sound familiar remember when the bus drivers said yeah that's it we've had it we're done we're out of here we're going on strike first thing tomorrow morning i was remember thinking at that time you know when you start really sticking it to the public like that that's when a lot of your support can start to evaporate i think the bus drivers had a lot of public support there i think they Organized that dispute in a pretty clever fashion. Their communication strategy was real good. A lot of people, I think, sympathized with the situation with the bus drivers. But I think that union themselves knew damn well that once you shut the whole thing down, then sometimes that public support can start to evaporate pretty darn quickly. Because this is not only a fight between a union and management but it's also a fight for the hearts and minds of the public. This is like a PR war. Who can win the public support? And I think there's a lot of sympathy for these workers out there, but when you start shutting stuff down, that's when it can go bye-bye real quick, especially at such a busy time of year when people got to get to work, they got to get out to Christmas parties, they got to go shopping and all the rest of it. So we'll see if this strike happens tomorrow morning. I got a feeling... I hope I'm right here. I got a feeling that maybe they get the deal done today. The good news is they're talking and they've got a mediator in there. Not like the bus drivers. Remember, the bus drivers didn't have a mediator. I don't know why the government didn't put one in there. They got a deal done without one. At least they've got a mediator in there. At least they're talking. At least they've got negotiations getting started again this morning. That's the good news. So if they can get a deal done here today, we avert this strike tomorrow or are they walking off the job at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning? Here's another possibility. Do they start to make some sort of a progress at the bargaining table today, and then maybe later on we hear, okay, we're going to delay things a little bit, the strike will start the next day, or we're going to put off the deadline a little bit. That could happen too. I got a feeling that maybe that happens. I hope I'm right. But here's our hot question of the day. Are you confident... A deal can be reached between QP and their employees and their employers to avert tomorrow's SkyTrain shutdown. Would you say yes for the public good they'll get a deal or would you say no, they're too far apart? Here's how you vote on this today. At CKNW on Twitter. Go to at CKNW on Twitter. You'll find it there. Give me a follow while you're there, please. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H. Mike Smith News on Twitter. I'll retweet the hot question of the day. Phone me on the buzz line on this today. 
604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. Talk about the long wait for ride-hailing services here in British Columbia. The latest on that is the BC Passenger Transportation Board still dealing with those applications from Uber, Lyft, and many other ride-hailing companies as they seek an operating license here in British Columbia. They keep saying that we'll have these services before the end of the year, although we've been hearing that for years now. Now check this out, the revelation about thousands of sexual assaults, including 235 rapes in connection with Uber rides in the United States last year. Those are some shocking numbers. This is a report that Uber put out about the number of sexual assaults in Uber vehicles. It's prompted at least some groups to say, hang on a second here, before we go full bore for ride hailing here, these sexual assault numbers are disturbing. Do the drivers need more close uh, guarding and training? Let's check in with Stacy Forrester now. She's a coordinator with Good Night Out. And that is a uh, sexual assault prevention group. Stacy, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Tell me, uh, tell me briefly about Good Night Out. What do you guys do there? Yeah, Good Night Out uh, has a lot of programs that are focused on preventing sexual assault and sexual harassment, particularly um, connected to liquor serving establishments or the nightlife in Vancouver. One of our most popular um, programs that we run is a street team in the Granville Entertainment District on the weekends between midnight and 4 a.m. Okay, is that a problem that's getting worse in the entertainment district these days? Well, we know um, just a couple months ago that report came out from the Freedom of Information Act um, that kind of showed that there was 1,500 sexual assaults in Vancouver between 2016 and 2018, and over a third of them were in the, the central business district where the GED is. Okay, let's so, talk about... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay. That's Those are just some disturbing numbers for sure. Let's talk about ride hailing because I know your group had said, look, one of the things that you're concerned about and I think a lot of women are concerned about is especially if they're trying to get home from, let's say, the downtown entertainment district at night is getting a safe ride home. And if you can't get a taxi that's willing to take you to where you want to go, if you're going to the North Shore or something or you're going to the Tri-Cities and the driver doesn't want to take you there, which happens... Look, let's get some more services available, right? Let's get ride hailing so we can get people home safely. I, that was your position, right? You guys were calling for ride hailing, right? We, we've been saying that for a long time because yeah. so much of the street team's work is trying to get people, like you said, who live out in the suburbs or live on the North Shore home when they're too intoxicated. Right, right. What was your reaction when you saw this report from Uber about the number of sexual assaults that are taking place in Uber cars in the United States? I mean, I wish I could say I was shocked, but given the realities of sexual violence in North America, I'm not shocked. On one hand, I'm happy that there was data collected because that's the first step in solving a problem. We we can't get any data out of the taxi companies or any accountability. So on one hand, it's great that there is some data about this, but the next question is then what are we going to do about it and how are we going to stop right. this and how are we going to bring these numbers down? Right. Now, the numbers are shocking. Uh, once again, this report talks about thousands of sexual assaults, 235 rapes, which is horrifying, and Uber rides in the United States last year. The company is saying there are no, there's no data available for Canada right now but maybe you could assume that obviously there probably be some problems in canada as well 
are those numbers i mean uber is saying like look yeah okay there these these things have happened but we're talking about millions of rides here and if you compare it to the number of rides that have happened three million trips uh you know a day in the united states that maybe it's not that bad i mean if they're saying well it's like you know 99.9 percent of the rides are safe and and i feel like that's a really problematic take on it because what then is the acceptable number you know how many sexual assaults and how many rapes are an acceptable amount well they're saying that that this is like where's the line where it becomes unacceptable um, to obviously to groups like my own and, and other people doing this work, it's already way too many. Um, people should be able to move around their city on the, the SkyTrain, on the transit system, and on rideshare free from the threats of violence. Right. Right. So how do we do this? I mean, are you saying that the we're told that ride-hailing will be approved for Metro Vancouver imminently? I mean, it could happen any day here. Are you saying yeah. that they should put the brakes on that, delay it for a while? I mean, we've waited this long, so um, what would be, I feel like there's a real opportunity to emerge as a leader in a city where um, Vancouver has a gender equity strategy, which includes a goal of making the city at least 10% safer for women to move around in. And if we want to live up to that strategy and see that goal happen, this is a prime opportunity to step in and say, at least in Vancouver, I mean, ideally the whole province, but at least in Vancouver, let's let's use this as a real example on how to prioritize the safety of our more vulnerable community members. Okay, how do we do that, though? I mean, like Uber is saying, well, you know, we already do a criminal background check on our drivers. If you've got a criminal record, you can't be a driver for Uber. You, they got to go farther with what? With maybe, maybe sexual assault training? Prevention training, yeah. Prevention. We know that sex, yeah. sexual assault is one of the most underreported crimes in North America, So a criminal record check really isn't enough. And building in safety features into the app isn't enough because that still puts it on the target of of these behaviors to to do something about it when the onus should be on the company to train all of their drivers in um, respectful workplaces, in sexual violence prevention, in, you know, the legal status and and all of these important prevention tools. Okay, speaking of Stacey Forrester, she's a coordinator with Good Night Out. They are a sexual assault prevention group in Vancouver. Um, you mentioned the, the safety on the app and that there is an emergency button, I think, you can, you can press on the, on the Uber app, right? That's one of the things that Uber is saying in the wake of this report, saying, look, we're improving our safety system. So there is like an emergency button on the on the Uber app. So if you are in trouble, you can immediately contact police, right? I think that all the, all the tools we need in preventing sexual assault, the better. But ideally, we live in a society um, where, again, it's not on us to continually hyper vigilant and, and always aware of the panic button to get <clears throat> to get out of situations. Yeah. And I think that we also have to remember that a lot of people are using rideshare because they're intoxicated yeah. um, or they're, you know, not fully as alert as they normally would be, um, which is another reason why these rides have to take that extra step to keep passengers and drivers safe, because that report included that almost half of those um, assaults and attempted assaults were against drivers. Okay, another thing that Uber is saying, and they sent us a statement, by the way, saying, well, okay, we acknowledge that these these numbers are, are scary and disturbing, but they also say, well, look at the number of sexual assaults going on on 
large metropolitan transit services. So they said, for example, last year in New York City, there were 1,125 complaints of sexual assault uh, on the transit system in the same period. Are you buying that as kind of an excuse or or any kind of context that I mean you know? that's that's like saying well you know like well look how bad they're doing yeah, yeah, <laughs> instead of yeah. you know acknowledging what the real issues we know that that assaults and attempted assaults on transit happen I mean just last week um, the transit police released a, a new anti-groping campaign right so so we know that all modes of transit. Are, can be potentially unsafe and that it's just not acceptable to say, oh, well, the buses are just as bad. We don't have to do anything. Um, I, I really want to see a shift in our culture to say, you know what? Yes. What can we do to make this mode of transportation safer? Right. And the other thing that jumped out at me on transit for your thoughts on it are, you know, I mean, you've talked to many women who will tell you how, how many women have been groped on a bus. You know what I mean? Like if you're on a, if you're on a crowded bus or a crowded SkyTrain, how many women would report having, they've been touched inappropriately? And I wonder if that's included in these, that's, that's included as a sexual assault in the transit system. It's a little different when you're in a, like a private car, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, we know that transit, because of the anonymity, anonymity of passengers, we know that right, groping right. on transit is a huge problem. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and we, good night out has been hearing for years that there's also been problems with taxi cabs, except we don't have really great data about any of these, um, two kind of hotspots for, for harassment, um, which is why I see this as an opportunity. This data is like something to respond to and something to react to rather yeah. than say, well, trains are just as bad. You mentioned like the taxi. So you guys have asked for stats and data from the taxi industry and they won't give it, they won't give it out. We've been trying to work with taxis in Vancouver for a long time because we have been um, kind of fielding many concerns, particularly from women and the LGBTQ community in Vancouver, that they've had incidences of harassment in taxi cabs. But we we haven't made any headway, Um, which is why I'm seeing this situation as almost a positive in that we can't get the taxis to respond to this issue. So maybe we can get the rideshare sector too. Well, yeah. And I mean, at least Uber at least revealed these numbers, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like I like I said at the opening, it's 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 one step in being accountable and one step in addressing violence against women is responding to to this data. Right. Right. Okay. So if we did a delay on ride hailing, and if they brought in some more like sexual assault prevention training for drivers, as you mentioned, do you think that there's a potential to delay a service that would actually make women safer because one of the I think one of the strongest arguments in favor of ride hailing is the argument that you guys have been making for a long time that women are looking to get a safe ride home and if we delay it even more even in the even in the spirit of you know trying to per- make keep women as safe as possible do we actually make women less safe if they continue to have to take a, a risky ride home I think it depends on what your angle is. If we're we're looking at ending or reducing the amounts or the opportunities for for women to be targeted in the long run, then we waited this long in BC for rideshare. Um, what is another three weeks to a month? You know, to have that added sense of uh, ideally safety and prevention. Okay. Okay. Stacy, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank okay. you so much for having me. All Thank right, you. Bye. Thank you. That's Stacy Forrester. She is a coordinator with Good Night Out. What's going on? 
Well, uh, there's some VPD in the community safety unit seizing all the cannabis and threatening us with future arrests and other problems if we continue to provide cannabis products to our community. All right, welcome back to the show. Mike Smith in for Simi. That was the voice of cannabis activist Dana Larson speaking to Simi back on October 30th. That's the day that his medical marijuana dispensary was raided by the Vancouver Police Department and the province's new pot police, the Community Safety Unit. This is the Provincial Pot Squad. They are responsible for shutting down unlicensed, illegal marijuana stores. Now, of course, marijuana is legal across Canada now, but there are still lots of illegal stores operating uh, in the province. The Community Safety Unit, I wrote about this in the Vancouver Province newspaper yesterday, which you can still find online, theprovince.com, by the way, check it out. They have raided 21 different stores so far, 21. And Solicitor General Mike Farnworth says there are more raids to come. Is this the way to go? Should the government be raiding these illegal pot stores? We got our panelists assembled on this one. Cash Heed, the former public safety minister, former West Vancouver police chief. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Cash. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for coming on. Also, the aforementioned Dana Larson, the founder of the Vancouver Dispensary Society. Hi, Dana. Hey, hello. Thanks for having me. Dana, thanks for coming on. Let's go back to October 30th when your store was raided here. We heard a little bit of the live, your live reaction as it was going on in the show that day. What happened that day? Well, the Community Safety Unit, which is really an Orwellian name for this group, they, they just come in and empty your shop and take all your cannabis and issue a bunch of threats and uh, leave. It's very disconcerting. Okay, I talked to, I talked about you with you about this the other day, and you estimated what tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand dollars or more worth of pot that day. Yeah, it's a pre- it's a pretty big number. We're a busy oh. spot, and uh, cannabis isn't cheap. So yeah, it's a, definitely a serious financial hit, and uh, we'll see if they decide to start laying charges or not. Right, and the store is still open though, right? Uh, we reopened a few hours later, just like the Victoria Buyers Club, which was also raided recently, and they also reopened a few hours later as well. Uh, we're not going down without uh, a serious fight. Okay, aren't you afraid of getting hammered with massive fines or maybe thrown in jail? No, I'm not afraid of those things, and hopefully oh. uh, those aren't going to happen. Well, because I, I'm doing what's right and what's needed, and so I don't let, let fear of those kind of things guide me. Uh, you know, we're right near St. Paul's Hospital. We're serving thousands of people that need the access to the medicine that we're providing, and that is my priority, serving those patients. Okay, let me go to Kashi, the former Solicitor General. Cash, do you think the government's doing the right thing here, trying to shut down these illegal stores? I mean, if, if someone is operating a legal store, they've paid $30,000 for a legal operating license, they've got gone through all the background checks, they're doing everything above board, why should they have to compete against illegal stores? Do you think the government's doing the right thing, shutting them, shutting them down? Well, let me tell you, there has to be a balance here on how we enforce our laws in Canada and here in British Columbia. The retail rollout of cannabis in Canada has been a complete disaster, Michael. There's 10 different systems in Canada, and the consumer is actually confused. We have no access, clear access to uh, medical cannabis, which Dana is alluding to in his location near St. Paul's Hospital, where there's 
an incredible amount of consumers that use it for medicinal purposes. But I've always said you're never going to be able to arrest or enforce your way out of this particular problem. And we knew these problems would arise because, Michael, you and I talked about this previously the, the program in Vancouver was somewhat different than elsewhere, where, in fact, we allowed these dispensaries called at that time to open up. Yeah. And I think we had, Dana, you can correct me, we had excess of 100 of these dispensaries operating in Vancouver. And right. then we came to the federal legalization of this and tried to pull back on all this. So we've had this uh, chaotic and uh, bipolar approach to trying to deal with this. And strictly enforcement and, and threatening uh, people like Dana and others is not the approach we should be taking. We need to take more of a balanced approach, Michael. Well, yeah, but what if you're a legal store and you're operating down the street from an illegal <laughs> store? Like I talked to a guy for the article I did in the province newspaper yesterday. His name is William McLean, and he runs four legal cannabis shops in Vancouver. They're called City Cannabis. And okay. he's he's running these legal stores, and he's saying, like, why should I have to compete against unlicensed illegal stores that are actually trying to steal my customers and he wants the government to shut these stores down well by virtue of the product that's available in the legal and illegal store you've got the uh, discrepancies that are taking place and the consumers that I talk to in this medical market can tell you that they prefer to go to their trusted uh, person where they can get it at a reasonable price compared to a product which is in their mind deficient and at a higher cost. So Michael, mm-hmm. we're not going to create this massive demand for this particular product, but people want, people that are consumers of this particular product, especially from a medical point of view, they want yeah. a product that's reliable to them, one that has worked for them in the past. And if you don't have it in the legal market, Michael, they are going to go to the illicit market to get that. And that's why yeah. we have over 85% of the sales of cannabis from October 2018 to October 2019, coming from the black market. Again, it's because of this uh, rollout disaster, the 10 different systems, and the fact that legal cannabis is too expensive, it's inconvenient to get it, and the product doesn't have the quality that the consumer is used to. Uh, Okay, I've heard that, but I still have a lot of sympathy for someone who's jumped through all these hoops and paid all these licensing fees and got their staff all trained up and went through the criminal background checks and did everything the government told them to do, and then they've got to compete against an illegal store. I mean, Dana, I mean, you're running an unlicensed shop. Why should you be allowed to compete against these legal stores? Well, we're actually in compliance with Vancouver City bylaws, and other shops that have paid their $30,000 fee to the city of Vancouver are also getting raided. The Herb Co., for instance, was, was paid their fee. They're in compliance with the city rules. We were told by the city of Vancouver that as we're transitioning into the legal system, we are trying to get a permit for our shop that was raided. We are going through the legal system with the province. We were told that as long as you're going through that system, they would allow us to transition. Now it turns out that's not the case. But, but the reality is that even if our dispensary disappeared, our customers would not all then suddenly flock to these legal shops. The, 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 the places like City Cannabis should be not complaining about the black market, which is not going away regardless of whether our dispensary is there or not. They should be complaining about the rules and the regulations and the system that doesn't allow them to compete properly, the high taxes on the cannabis that they're selling, the low quality in many cases of the products they're providing. Those are the real problems. And even if they shut down every storefront 
in, in the country that's not going to herd all these customers into their shops. They're going to continue to use the free market in other ways. Yeah, so but, they should be I mean, directing their ire at the government that created the system that they're part of. That, if they want to yeah. fix things, that's where they have to focus. Well, yeah, but the government is saying, well, okay, we're, they're obviously experiencing some growing pains as they try to get this new industry up and running, but they, they say they're making progress. They've got 170 licenses for private stores that they've issued out there in B.C., and this guy who runs the, the city cannabis stores, which are a legal, a legal store, legally licensed stores, he told me that these a legal store would send people to his shop, stand outside his store, Dana, and give away free joints and say, don't shop at this store, come and shop at our store. I mean... Well, he's actually mistaken about that. There wasn't any. I know those people who put on those protests, and they were not sponsored by any dispensary. Those are people, regular folks, activists in the cannabis movement, who are upset with how legalization is rolled out. And so they're not they're not being sent there by dispensaries to compete. People know where to find cannabis if they want to access it. Uh, They don't need people standing in front of the shop. So that wasn't done to promote dispensaries. That was a protest. What are they protesting about? They're protesting that the legally licensed shops are constantly calling for more arrests, more raids, and more attacks on dispensaries and on the cannabis community. And I think that's what bothers people. You know, I don't mind these other stores existing, but when they're constantly calling for me and other dispensaries to be raided and shut down and for medical users to have their access cut off, that makes people upset. Uh, and so there's a lot of hostility in the cannabis community against the licensed producers in these companies, and they're okay. not going to improve their customer relations by demanding more police action against cannabis. Okay, let me cash. Let me go to you real quick, and then we'll take a break, and, and maybe we'll get some phone calls going. But you know, I mean, you you do consulting to the legal cannabis industry now, right? Correct. That's one of your jobs. Okay. Don't you feel any sympathy for a guy who has spent probably hundreds of thousands of dollars? going through all the legal processes, getting a business license, getting the background checks, buying a legal, legally sourced product, and then he has to compete against illegal stores. I mean, I take the points you made earlier, but you got to feel some sympathy for this guy. Absolutely. Who's trying to do, yeah. Absolutely. But, but let's just go, go through all this. I believe in a balanced approach. The one-hand enforcement approach is it has its role, but it shouldn't be the only problem that we try and uh, rectify it through that source. There has to be other ways of doing it, and there are other ways of doing it. If government would get off this mindset that there's a cash cow coming to general revenue, it's not coming, Michael, and hopefully we can delve into that and I can explain why. But right now, the black market is thriving all over Canada when, in fact, uh, we should be looking at uh, transitioning it to a legal market. The B.C. government now trying to shut down a lot of these illegal marijuana stores. They've got a police squad called the Community Safety Unit. They've raided 21 illegal marijuana stores in the past few months. They're seizing a lot of pot and a lot of money, too. Uh, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth told me in one store they seized nearly $500,000 in cash. In another store, $450,000 worth of cannabis products seized. Uh, they say their weapons were seized in uh, at least one raid. My guests are Cash Heed, Dana Larson, as we continue talking about this and taking your calls on the open line, too. Dave in Vancouver on the open line. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. What do you think? Well, um, first of all, you can't have a society where anybody can open up uh, shops on every corner without going through the proper channels. Otherwise, everybody and their dog would be doing it. 
Um, secondly, uh, this black market was never going to go away. It was just it, anybody should have known from the beginning that they were simply going to reduce their prices and increase their, uh, the potency of the pot to, to keep their customers and to gain more customers. Okay, Dave, thank you for the call. Dana, what would you say to that, to his first point, that nobody, you shouldn't be allowed to just open a store if you want to without a license? Well, we've been open for over 10 years, and, and some of the dispensaries getting raided have been open for over 20 years. And, uh, and, and you keep saying that we're illegal dispensaries, but I'll point out that the, the highest law in Canada is the Charter of Rights and the Constitution, and that we have a legal right to continue to operate and provide medical cannabis to patients. And we're in the B.C. Court of Appeal right now arguing that case. Uh, but uh, we're about medical cannabis. The legal system is about recreational cannabis. And those are two very different things. Uh, so, you know, we're providing medical cannabis to patients who need it. Uh, the legal shops are specifically limited only to recreational cannabis for recreational users. Well, the reason, the reason I'm, Dana, the reason I'm using the word illegal is there's a law in our province called the Cannabis Control and Licensing Act that says you've got to have a legal license to sell marijuana. Well, I understand that. And we are actually licensed by the city of Vancouver with our development permit, but but I'm also just pointing out that the same legal arguments that apply that allowed medical cannabis dispensaries to exist and to proliferate, those arguments are still valid despite the legalization we've been given uh, because patients still have a right to access cannabis for medical purposes, and the reality is it's harder to get medical marijuana in Canada now since legalization than it was beforehand. So there's a lot of issues around medical access that the courts are still looking at. Let's go to D in Nanaimo. Hi. Hi. You know, the whole time this debate was going on, all we heard was legalize it and tax it. And I even heard Dana say that on more than one occasion. Now that it's legalized, they're all going, oh, well, the tax is too much money. We don't want to pay that. It's too expensive. It's the reason most of us said, yeah, let's go ahead and legalize this was because we wanted to see the legality to get it out of the court system because that was wasting a lot of money. But you know what? I want to see it taxed as badly as alcohol and cigarettes because that's how okay. most of us see it. Okay, it's a D, thank, thin thank, tax it. Thank you for the call, D. Cash, let me go back to you. We've only got like a minute and a half left here, Cash, but you said earlier the government's not going to get rich off of this. How come? No, absolutely not. And uh, they'll tell you uh, that they never meant to be, but uh, behind closed doors, they'll tell you the federal government thought this would be a cash cow. They even had the legalization come into the budget cycle. And in fact, the provinces were depending on that cash. It is not there. We only have a six to eight billion dollar business of cannabis in Canada. Alcohol, we have 22 billion and tobacco, 16 billion. It's not going to come now. Taxing it is not going to work. We've got, as uh, pointed out, you can get legal cannabis uh, for around now. There's a company, Hexon, out of Quebec that'll sell it for just over four dollars a gram. But uh, in the illegal market, you can get it for $4 a gram consistency. If you go into a cannabis retail store, it's upwards of $10 a gram. So there's no way you're going to get the consumer to pay that much just from a taxation point of view. We have to get away from this view of taxation. We have to get in front of what is the best policy for Canadians. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Guys, thanks for coming on. The, the time went by really quickly. I appreciate you both being on the show today. It's Cash Heed, uh, the former Solicitor General, Dana Larson, Vancouver Dispensary Society. Okay, the weather's a bit chilly outside, so let's close our eyes, think of sunshine and warm weather, and having fun in the happiest place on Earth, a.k.a. Disneyland. I've been down there with my kids a couple of times. I haven't been in years, though, but I want to go again, because they've got this new Star Wars land that's open at Disneyland now called Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Some incredible new rides down there. Uh, also, other news coming out of Disneyland. So let's check in now with Greg Antonell. He is the founder of MickeyBlog.com. That's a really awesome fan website if you, lo- if you love Disneyland. He also runs a Disney travel agency called MickeyTravels.com. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Greg. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great, Greg. Thanks for coming on. Let's talk about... Uh, uh, my pleasure. Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland. It's been open for a while. What can for people who haven't been down there yet? What is this area of Disneyland like now? The the Star Wars area. So the Star Wars area in Disneyland is amazing. For you know, lack of a better word, it's just it it it's very very. Uh, it, it's immersed. Number one, um, it's it's very large. It uh, it puts the guest right in the middle of a Star Wars movie, so to speak. Um, so. Uh, the interesting thing about it is if you're a Star Wars fan, it's incredible. If you're not a Star Wars fan, it's incredible. So <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 it is. It's tremendous. I mean, it's, uh, I'm a huge Disney fan, obviously, and uh, by far it's now my favorite land. So, Okay. They've got a, a great new ride that just opened at Disney World in Florida, and I know you've been at that one, and the same ride's opening soon at Disneyland down in California. So, But let's talk about the the one that's open there now. There's a ride they've got now at Disneyland called the Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run Ride, right? Correct. Yeah, what's, what's that one like? Absolutely. So that ride, uh, Smuggler's Run, basically puts you in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. So um, you ride it with five other people. So there's six people in the cockpit and it's sort of a simulation type of, uh, type of attraction where, um, you, you're right in the middle. And, uh, you know, when, when we went on that, it was interesting because, well, this is awesome. This is great. But little did we know it pales in comparison to the rise of the resistance attraction, which yeah. will be opening up in January. Okay. Let's get to the rise of the resistance one. Cause this is the one that's getting all the hype and the buzz this week because it's open now at Disney world in Florida. You've been there, right? I have. Correct. Okay. okay. Let, let's talk about this ride and it's, and the same ride's going to be opening soon at Disneyland in, in California. So tell me about this, the new ride, the rise of the resistance ride. Yeah, so interesting. I was there for the media event, and one of the things about uh, the media, whether it's print, uh, online, whatever the case may be, um, they're all very vocal. Um, you know, we love talking about Disney. We love sharing our opinions, all that type of stuff. This was the first time that I've been on an attraction, especially with members of the media, who during the majority of it, their jaws were dropped, um, oh. just completely wide-eyed. Yeah, completely wide-eyed, jaws dropped. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And then getting off of the attraction, everybody saying the same exact thing, which was, 
that is the best ride that I've ever been on in my life. And so I, I, I certainly feel the same way. Um, I've ridden, uh, you know, just about every attraction and, you know, major ones in the United States. And uh, when you think that it can't get any better, it does. And so I don't want to give away too many spoilers because yeah. there's a lot of people out there that, uh, you know, that are saying, oh, don't spoil it for me. Right. Um, the interesting thing, the interesting thing too, Mike, is when I went on it the first time, I was, I was lucky to ride it several times the first day, uh, the media day. Uh, when I went on it the first time, I got off and I said, wow, you know what? It can't be as good the second or third time just because of all the elements of surprise, et cetera. The second time I went on it was just as good, if not better than the first time. And the third time, just as good, if not better than the second, because you notice all these little intricacies. Um, You notice not that this is a big deal, but all of a sudden you're like, hey, that's a hidden Mickey over there, which you didn't think they would put into a a Star Wars uh, attraction. So it really is. There's so much to it. Um, and, and the interesting thing here, which, uh, they're, they're testing out and I'm sure it's going to work in Disneyland the same way is the park opens at 8am over here. They have a virtual queue. So no fast passes, but a virtual queue. And the last five days or so, if you have not been in that virtual queue by about 7.30am, which means before the parks open, you were not able to ride it that day. That's how popular this attraction is. Wow. Okay. The virtual queue, that, that's interesting. How does that work? I'm familiar with the fast pass system and people who've been to Disneyland, uh, I probably know what the fast pass system is where you're basically, you get a ticket sure. and you're scheduled to get on the ride later in the day. How does this virtual queue system work? Yeah. So the virtual queue, they tried out for the first time with Galaxy's Edge in Disneyland. So when that opened up, there was a virtual queue. They brought it over to Walt Disney World as well. And so what happens now with the virtual queue is um, on the My Disney Experience app on your phone, uh, which I recommend everybody downloading if they're going to be in the park, uh, you can, once you're checked in, so in Walt Disney World, for instance, once you tap your magic band, and I know it's different in, in Disneyland with the ticket, but once you check into the park, you are then able to join a, what's called a boarding group. And when you're in that boarding group, all members of your party have to be in the park in order for your boarding group to be in the queue. So the difference to a degree is with a fast pass, you could be sitting at home and sign up for a fast pass. Uh, you can't do that with the queue. Now what happens is once you, once your entire boarding, once your entire group rather is in the boarding group in the park, you then get a time, you get a number, you could say, let's say boarding group number 57. And when it's your time, they tell you then to come to the attraction. So you can walk around the rest of the park, which we've done in Walt Disney World. We walked around uh, Hollywood Studios and uh, Toy Story Land or whatever. Many times what's happening is people are getting their, their boarding group at seven, sometimes even earlier, four, five, six o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning. Wow. And then they're not able to ride it until maybe two or three o'clock in the afternoon. So perfect example, uh, what day was this Friday? Uh, we got our virtual, uh, boarding pass at seven thirty nine AM. And then we wrote it exactly seven hours later, um, at three thirty nine PM. So there's about a okay. seven hour wait in Walt Disney world right now. Okay. When does the ride now the ride is opened at Disney world in Florida, as you mentioned, and you've been there and you said you were blown away. When, when is the same ride going to open at Disneyland in California? 
Opens January 17th of okay. 2020, so not too far away. Um, and, and I do, just again, based off my experience, I do recommend if folks are able to get there in Disneyland, whether it's opening day or soon thereafter, it is well worth it. It really is. Okay. I, I think the consensus for the best ride at Disneyland these days, you correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, but when I was there, people loved the Cars ride, the Radiator Springs Racers ride in the Cars land. People loved the Indiana Jones ride. Um, there's a few other iconic great rides, Space Mountain at Disneyland. Would you say that this one, this new ride will quickly supplant it as number one best ride? Absolutely. Yeah, not even not even a question in my mind. I've been on all of them. They're all great rides, um, but there's not even a question. It's just a totally different type of experience. Um, it's long, so some of the rides that you mentioned, you know, are a couple minutes long. This is yeah. about anywhere from 15 to 17 minutes long. Wow. So as opposed to being a ride, it's it's more of an experience. It's the same thing here in, in, you know, in Walt Disney World. I know we're talking about Disneyland, but uh, Flight of Passage opened up in Walt Disney World, which has had the longest lines since it's opened up. Uh, that's obviously going to change now um, because while uh, Flight of Passage was many, many people's favorite attraction in Walt Disney World, yeah. they're all saying the same thing. It pales in comparison. Same thing with Disneyland. Okay. Well, you, you mentioned. You sold me. I'm looking forward to, to experiencing this, I hope, maybe in the new year with my family. Greg, thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it today. My pleasure. All right, that's Greg Antonell. He's the founder of MickeyBlog.com, which is a really good website if you're a fan of Disneyland, talking about the new Star Wars land there at Disneyland in California and the new Star Wars ride called Rise of the Resistance. As you, as you heard him describe there, has now opened up at Disney World in Florida, and he got to ride it on day one as part of the, as part of the media covering of the event. And, <laughs> oh man, you heard his description of the ride there. He said, this is the best ever. So if you're into Disneyland, I'm looking forward to kind of trying that. The ride, the same ride will open at Disneyland in California in January, as you heard him say there. I work downtown and I commute. I take the Sky Train. That's my sole entry into downtown. So I don't know. We'll see, I guess. I, I'll have to drive. We won't be able to get to our jobs. It's going to paralyze uh, the whole system. All right. Welcome back to the show. Mike Smith filling in for Simi today. We're on full alert here for a potential Sky Train strike starting at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. The QP Union representing 900. SkyTrain workers vowing a full shutdown uh, starting tomorrow morning unless they get a deal. Now, a strike would affect the Expo and Millennium SkyTrain lines. The Canada line very significantly would not be affected here. Uh, buses would still be running. Seabus, West Coast Express, uh, they would all still be running. But the Expo and the Millennium SkyTrain lines, they would be shut down at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. If this strike goes ahead. Now, the good news is they are talking. They are meeting. They've got a mediator in there. Maybe, maybe they can get a deal. But full alert here for a potential SkyTrain strike in the morning. And we're watching very closely as negotiations get back underway this morning. Let's check in now with Global News senior reporter Janet Brown on the scene covering this story today. Hiya, Janet. 
Good afternoon, Mike. Here I am in downtown Vancouver at the Labor Relations Board, keeping a very close eye on the talks. Media is kept out in the hallway, so obviously we're not privy to what's going on behind the closed doors. But as you say, as long as the two sides are still talking, and they are right now, well, that's very good news. As soon as somebody walks away, that's bad news. As you say, um, it's mediated talks right now here at the LRB and... If no deal is reached by tonight, there will be no service, as you say, Mike, on the Expo and Millennium lines starting Tuesday morning. Uh, The union says the strike would continue until Friday morning. So clearly, Mike, if if that happens, if it gets to that worst-case scenario, it's going to be a nightmare for commuters and everybody else who uses the roadways in and around Metro Vancouver because if there is no SkyTrain running, uh, the Expo Millennium lines, uh, the buses are going to be busier, people are going to be in their vehicles, more people in their vehicles, and the roads are going to be uh, far worse congested than they already are with all systems go. So all eyes on what's happening here. Um, we haven't heard from the union, we haven't heard from the company, so uh, we could be hearing from them, we are told, sometime this afternoon, but Obviously, that's wide open. And uh, so here we wait, Mike, for any sort of an update to let the public know whether the Expo Millennium SkyTrain lines will be running as of tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. All right, everybody hoping for the best there, about 150,000 people using the Expo Millennium SkyTrain lines on a daily basis so that would cause a lot of headaches tomorrow if you're thinking like oh well maybe they can just put some more surface buses on the road and get people around by bus uh think again the coast mountain bus company is putting out a statement this morning <laughs> say that they're not going to increase bus service if the SkyTrain workers do go on strike a statement from mike mcdaniel here the company president is saying customers should be aware given our operational constraints we are not able to increase bus service in response to a planned strike on SkyTrain this week. Bus service will be operating normally as it would be on any regular weekday. So, Janet, no increased bus service if this strike goes ahead in the morning. But what's your take on the mood down there? Like you mentioned, we haven't heard from the union today, but is, is, is your read on this that maybe they're close or are they far apart? What's your take on it? Mike, I don't know. I haven't talked to either the mediators or the negotiators thus far. I don't know. But as I say, as long as they are still at the table talking, seeing each other face to face, that's a good thing. Uh, We all know that. But as soon as somebody walks away, we're in serious trouble. When you talk about no more added buses, uh, TransLink does say, however, Mike, that they have launched an online guide on how to get around without SkyTrain using their trip planner and also Google Maps. So that is apparently going to help out people to some degree figure out what they're going to do. But, you know, if you don't have a friend, if you don't have a carpool lined up and you do rely on SkyTrain to get to work and things go sideways, how are people going to get around tomorrow? Yes, there are the buses. But clearly, they're going to be crammed to capacity. So it's going to be a nightmare for sure. And you know what? The company knows that, the union knows that. And and the thing in these negotiations is, you know, Mike, the union has to keep the public on side because the minute yeah. the public isn't supporting the union, things also could go sideways. So it's a very fine line that both the company and the union are walking right now. And clearly both sides are committed and dedicated and hoping to reach some sort of common ground so that they can reach a tentative agreement. 
So, you know, let's all keep our fingers and toes crossed that uh, yeah. they will be able to work that out this afternoon, Mike. Well, I think that's an excellent point you raise about trying to keep the public on side because these kind of disputes, it's not just a fight between the union and the management, but it's also a fight for public support and the hearts and minds of the people that are affected by any kind of job action. And when we look back at the labor dispute we just went through on the bus system, I thought that the union... Uh, for the bus drivers, Unifor, I thought they played that one pretty smart. They kind of slowly kind of ramped up the pressure, and they did a lot of public outreach. They were doing leafleting and buttons, uh, handing up buttons at stations and stuff, and just getting the public on side, very available to the media to put their case forward, uh, making the case for driver safety, clearly explaining the issues to people. And I think that helped the union in a lot of ways to get the public on side and put put a lot of pressure on management as they slowly ramped up the pressure in this dispute though it, it, it almost seems like the qp union here which represents these skytrain workers they've they've like pressed the nuclear button right away we haven't seen a sort of a slow ramp up of job action or work to rule mm-hmm. action or anything like that i mean it, it almost seems like they're going immediately to a threatened full-scale strike well, Mike, there's a reason for that. Uh, you're right about the Unifor Union, the bus drivers, C-bus operators. They ramped up slowly and they kept the public on side and they had a great uh, campaign that way. But mm. it is different in this situation because we are hearing from the union, uh, QP7000, that if they ramp up slowly and cut back slowly, there would be a safety risk if they scaled mm. back gradually. So that's understandable. They can't pull certain people off of the sky trains, such as the folks who repair the trains, the people who are at central control, that sort of thing. It's either an all or nothing thing because they have to keep the public safety. It's a totally different model than, than the bus dispute. So, so that's, that's why it's an all or nothing thing here, Mike. Um, I, I kind of wondered that too, but that's what was explained to me. It's a safety risk if they gradually yeah. ramp up and pull back certain members of the union not to do certain jobs. So they have to keep everybody working or everybody not working. It's either one thing or the other. That's why. That's the explanation in this situation. Okay. A SkyTrain strike, not unprecedented. We have had a SkyTrain strike in the past 20 years ago. It lasted one day. <laughs> so not like the bus strike we had around 18 years ago that dragged on for months. SkyTrain was shut down for one day by a strike 20 years ago. I wonder if this time we saw the union and the bus drivers dispute go to the wall and threaten a walkout, and then they got a deal at the 11th hour I'm wondering if maybe we might see a similar thing like that, like we threaten a a total shutdown like this, but I don't know. Is it a bluff? Is it a tactic? Are they really going to do it? I think there's a lot of pressure on both sides to get a deal. And the fact that they're meeting Janet at the Labor Relations Board office and not some hotel room somewhere, I think that's actually a good thing that they're at the LRB office. I think that shows that these are serious talks going on in there. Absolutely. And they brought in the big guns to try and get a deal. As you say, at the LRB, they're getting all the help they can get. And I agree with you. It could be another 11th hour, um, you know, decision, just like it did uh, with the bus drivers and the CMUS operators. It went till 1230 in the morning before they were able to announce a tentative agreement. And even at the start of those talks at the Bayshore, I remember starting off in the morning at the 11th hour negotiations, things seemed sort of bleak. 
And, you know, people were, uh, the union members were rolling their eyes and, you know, I'm trying to read the body language and it didn't look good to tell you the truth. But, you know, as the afternoon went off, uh, talk seemed to pick up and progress and there was more movement. And so, you know, anything can happen. Um, right. When you ask me what I think is going to happen, I don't know, but at best guess, I would say it may go to the 11th hour and yeah. um, every, everything's on the line here, Mike, as we say, everything is on the line, the public. The union, the company, everybody wants an agreement, and they certainly don't want these talks to go sideways. And the fact that they are at the LRB in Vancouver and not, you know, the seventh floor of some hotel um, is a good thing because they have got the experts here at the table. They've got all the help. So go ahead and do it, people. And here we wait. And as soon as we have anything to report whatsoever, Mike, I will be on the air as soon as I can to let everybody know what's going on. Okay, look forward to that, Janet. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Okay, that's Janet Brown, Global News Senior Reporter. She's at the Labor Relations Board office at this hour. Today, I got a call from the CRA on my cell phone yesterday. Of course, it was a scam. How many How many people have gotten these calls? Anyone's got a cell phone out there has probably got one of these calls. And you got, you, the caller will say, quite often, it's uh, sometimes it's a, a recording that you get. Sometimes it's a real person saying that they're from the CRA and the cops are coming to get you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to throw you in jail unless you phone them and deal with them and try to resolve it. Of course, it's a scam. 99% I think of people or more probably realize something like this is a scam. It's a ripoff and they don't fall for it. But of course, there's always a small percentage of people uh, that will fall for it. And that's why it just keeps on happening. I remember one time this was very satisfying. I actually engaged the guy on the phone. I actually talked to a person on the phone who was pretending they were CRA, and I just let him have it verbally over the phone, just told the guy, you should be ashamed of yourself. Why are you doing this? Targeting little old ladies and people who, you know, older people who don't know better. This, You guys should be ashamed of yourself. The guy hung up on me, which I guess is not surprising, but I still feel like I got something off my chest. You know what I mean? Like I just dealt with the guy on the phone. Think about this, though. Have you ever heard of someone who gets one of these calls and on your call display, it actually says CRA right on your call display? Wow. I mean, now you're really potentially vulnerable to falling for something like that. If it shows up on your call display that it's CRA, maybe that's a little tougher to detect that it's actually a scam. Well, today, Canada's broadcasting and cell phone regular, the CRTC, is out with a new plan to tackle that. They want mobile phone companies to get on board and use new technology would help the reduce the number of fake caller ID scams out there. Let's check in with Patricia Valado now, a spokesperson for the CRTC. Hi, Patricia. Well, hi there. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. People may have heard the term. Thank you. People may have heard the term. Is is it called spoofing? Is this what this calls uh, caller ID spoofing? Yes, yes. As you said, and you know, good for you. You had a way of uh, talking to the scammer and put him in check. So yeah. good for you. Uh, yes, it is indeed something that worries us a lot is the fact that uh, uh, those calls, the bad players making those calls are able to target vulnerable Canadians. And it is right. really a concern for the CRTC. We have, however, been taking measures to combat these kinds of calls. So not only what we announced today, but we have already asked the industry. So just to 
give you a little background, we have already asked the industry to come up with solutions how to uh, block calls. So a while ago the CRTC went to the telecom service providers and asked them that we wanted them to implement um, a call blocking system, which actually comes into place now on December 19. We will have uh, the companies are going to be blocking the numbers that are completely blatantly wrong. For example, the one two three four zero zero zero, the ones that do not conform to the numbering. Uh, uh, the numbering in North America, which is the three first, the area code, and then the numbers. That's something that is really blatantly malformed. For that, right. we call call blocking. That's coming into place now on December 19. The providers in Canada that have not yet come up with a solution, they will be um, they will be implementing that. That will reduce the calls that are malformed. What we had announced today, which is called we call a steer shaking. It's a steer shaking framework, okay? There's a, it's, the steer shaking stands for Secure Telephony Identity Revisited. And it's um, a signature-based uh, handling of the call. So the, the way it happens is that a lot of those calls that you were mentioning, the spoof calls, come from um, calls that are made on IP networks. So anybody with a computer can actually spoof a call. Unfortunately, they can, uh, some of those hackers, or I, I really don't know how they do that, but they have a way of uh, mystifying a number and pretending they're calling for the CRA or from other places and placing those calls to Canadians. Right. So it, it is, it is informal. First, I, I, I'd have to even go in further saying that it's very, very important for Canadians to understand not to provide personal information over the phone. The government right. would not ask you for your credit card or for your bitcoins or for your social insurance number. Nothing over the phone. If those requests are made, you know, are going to be in different ways. And if you doubt of the origin of the call, don't answer it. Or call back the, the, the agent and did you call me if you were really thinking that you got a call from CRA. Unfortunately, those scams are made throughout, uh, you know, it's tax season, so they will be making calls from CRA. And, and you know, people do believe because some of them are really, really criminal the way they're doing that and asking for money. But this technology I'm talking about, it's, um, it's a framework that will be able to reduce the frequency and the impact of the caller ID spoofing on consumers for Internet protocol-based uh, voice calls. So the call that is originating the call, let's say um, the call is made out of computer because it's the way you spoof a number, and it's made to, to somebody else on the other side of the line uh, being a cell phone, which is also has to be on an internal um, uh, an IP network. Um, they will be, while handling that call from one, it's all done seamless behind the technology. People would not even see the way it's done. It will tag that call originated on um, an Internet protocol-based voice call to a recipient with either a signature or a token to verify that call is indeed an authentic call. So whoever is on the other side of the line will be getting, and yet it's too early to see exactly how they're going to implement in terms of technology, but that person on the other side will be receiving either a little tag or a green light saying it is indeed a, a valid call or it's not a call that you should take because the provider that IP base will be tagging that signature and so a, 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 a token or or a tag or something to validate the call, 
and then the other the other side whoever is receiving it will see okay this is a good call i can take it or this is a, a you know not sure that call is a good call it will come in a way that the person receiving the call will be able to identify and have the power to answer the call or not okay okay uh Caller ID spoofing, which we're talking about here, is a pretty kind of insidious kind of technology that they're able to do. They're actually able to put like a fake caller ID on, on the screen of your cell phone and, and really try to try to trick you. And I'm glad to see the CRTC trying to do something ab- about it. I, is the system working? You're going to ask the cell phone companies to try and implement this type of technology to cut down on it? Or does the CRTC have any kind of enforcement powers that you can, well, you can force the companies to put an end to this? What I can tell you is that what we are asking the industry to implement by September 2020, yeah. that sort of technology protocol, it is already something uh, that the FCC, which is our counterpart in the United States, um, will be uh, implemented by, before the end of the year. So in the U.S., they're already going to start using that, and then we will follow. We have to give enough time to the industry to be able to implement on their networks and see how they're going to come up with that specifically on their own networks. So we're telling them that by September 2020, they should implement a new caller ID authentication and verification measure that will help to reduce the spoofed calls. Okay, speaking to Patricia Valado from the CRTC about cutting down on these fake and scam calls coming in on your cell phone. It almost seems like a technological arms race, you know. It's almost, you know, you try to take yes. measures to stop it, and then these and, scammers. And the, yeah, the bad actors are really fast to to find new ways and new technology to circumvent what we're putting in place. Obviously, right, right, right. And, and they seem to be very good at it because I don't mm-hmm. know. I seem to be getting more calls like this on my own mobile phone. Does the CRT? You guys have any data on how common this is, or like are most Canadians getting calls like this a lot? Unfortunately, yes, it is something yeah. that's quite common, and again, it fluctuates with depending on the season. And uh, um, we know that the the complaints that we receive, forty percent of the complaints that we receive around that, are of spoof calls. So we get complaints about un- unwanted calls, but forty percent of the complaints that we have are the ones that are number spoofed. It is important, though, to 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 explain that there is um, there is a valid way that numbers. Sh- could be or should be spoofed. For example, uh, a shelter, okay, that does not want to mm. identify the number. They can use spoofing to hide the number. Or a police, uh, you know, doing an investigation, they don't want to put police off, you know, whatever, yeah. bury or they, they could spoof the numbers. So those that are valid spoofing for hiding reasons or enforcement reasons, they will be working with the providers, hopefully, to make sure that their calls will be identified as a legitimate call. Okay. Are most of these scam calls coming from outside of Canada? It it seems like a lot of it's coming from offshore, or do any of them originate inside Canada? It's hard to say. Um, It is something that worries us. Definitely, we have partnership with other countries and with other um, countries 
regulators like the CRTC, I mean, being that uh, in the UK or in Australia, to uh, work because it's not a Canadian problem only. This is a problem yeah. that happens. Uh, it's a global problem. So we need a global solution. We need to find different ways of combating those calls. Not one magic solution will from one day to another stop those calls. But we are trying different ways. For example, the call blocking coming into force on December 19. Then we have the stir shaking. Uh, some of the companies are already working on something that is uh, a call filtering, which will filter the calls and you are able to give to that company the numbers that you want to receive the call and block all the other ones. So we are, okay. with the industry participating, trying to find ways to reduce that amount of calls. That's really a nonsense for Canadians. Glad to hear you're doing something about it. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for Appreciate having me. Appreciate it. Patricia Valado, spokesperson for the CRTC, with some of the rules they're bringing in now. All right, as promised, let's talk about beauty salons and spas and should the government be stepping in to regulate this industry in order to protect consumers. This all follows the case of Danielle Nadeau. A lot of people may have heard her story. This is the Vancouver woman who went to a spa in Vancouver for laser hair removal on her legs. She says it was very painful she went in for multiple sessions at this spa. She said the last one that she had was very intensely painful, more than usual, and she ended up with scars on her legs. I mean, this widely reported story, a lot of photos you may have seen on the news or social media showing the scars on her legs. It looks terrible. Absolutely awful. All these scars up and down her legs, she says, from laser hair removal she's suing the spa involved now the spa here says that they do millions of these treatments successfully without any problem but they say there will can sometimes be adverse reactions caused by exposure to the sun or allergies or if people put certain lotions or medications on their body or their skin but they say it will resolve itself over time that lawsuit, though, still going ahead. But think about this now. Is this a case for consumer protection? Should the government step in here and regulate spas and beauty salons in British Columbia? Let's check in with Greg Robbins now, Executive Director of the Beauty Council of Western Canada. Hiya, Greg. Hey, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Tell me about the Beauty Council. Who do you guys represent there? So the, over the Beauty Council, we're a member-based association uh, designed to support education, community, and professionalism in the personal care industry. Um, okay. We also offer an advanced program in disease prevention and control called Beauty Safe. Okay, I'm, I know you're familiar with this story of, uh, of this woman whose legs were scarred. Uh, what did you think of that? Have you talked to her, by the way, Danielle Nadeau? We haven't spoken to Danielle, and of course, this case is proceeding towards the courts. So we're going yeah, to just yeah. let it uh, proceed as as go. But of course, we're we're not happy to see this once again pop up in the media, and frankly, we're not uh, we're not surprised, unfortunately. Okay, and when you say again, so there's been similar cases before. So there have been similar instances where people have been um, uh, injured in per personal care establishments. So that's you know, hair care services, skin care, barbering, shaving, nail care waxing, the list goes on. Uh, the, the point is many of these do not ever end up in a, in a formal court case, uh, but rather the injured people sort of 
go go on their way and, and just forget about it. But we hear of this often, both from operators and from the public. Okay, obviously not the type of stories you want to see uh, in your industry. What do you think should be done about it? So what's really needed is a return to the kind of regulation that was around before 2003, which really required people who operate these personal care establishments to be properly trained, certified, and licensed to do what they do. All right, so government regulation, licensing, training. So we used to have that in BC before? We did, up till 2003, and then the uh, government uh, took that away, along with a number of other trades. Uh, the, this is a trade a lot of us uh, don't realize. It's actually a, more of a trade because it's a hands-on sort of thing. Um, several of those trades did get their certification licensing requirements returned to them, probably in the interest of public safety. Um, but, you know, the, the personal care industry has been left, uh, left without any re-regulation at all. All right, I do recall that at the time with the BC Liberal Party in, in power then and the government relaxing these regulations. Why did they do that? What did the, why did the government say they were do, deregulating the industry back then? What was the reason they did it? So there were two sort of sides to the equation, and actually I, I have to do more research on it, but from, from what we've seen and what we know, it's sort of a sort of an overall mentality to reduce red tape, and we're yeah. seeing that over in Alberta a lot. Right. So this notion of too much government and, and relaxing. And furthermore, I don't believe, and again, I don't have access to the numbers, but I don't know that it was a revenue-positive uh, uh, situation for the government. The cost of maintaining and enforcing regulation was probably greater than, than the revenue. Right, but I, I recall the government saying, like, you know, let's get the government out of the face of business, and we don't need to overregulate with red tape. And mm -hmm. I guess most businesses would kind of agree with that, typically. You don't want to be overregulated, but I find it interesting that you're an industry group, and you actually want regulation, right? Yeah, we do, actually. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I, I agree, there's, look, there's red tape, and that is multiple forms and standing in line and get, being on hold forever and just not being able to conduct your business. But this is really a question of public safety, and a whole lot has changed since 2003. It's not your mom-and-pop hairdressing place anymore. We're talking needles. We're talking blood being drawn. Um, we've got machines like lasers on the go. A lot has happened since 2003. What circumstances would they draw blood at a spa? So blood is drawn often. Um, waxing is a very typical instance of uh, the breaking of what's called the sanitary barrier. Um, that is when you when you when you see blood. Um, not only that, but when in many nail care uh, instances, especially with pedicures or manicures, uh, there's a tool called a nipper that is used to trim um, uh, cuticles, and those can. Uh, draw blood if if the nipper isn't used properly and there are a lot of new sort of hip barbering places that are around where you know guys are wielding pretty sharp razors up against some pretty delicate skin and it's not difficult to uh to nick the skin and draw blood okay if you did go for this kind of regulations or licensing what are your member businesses telling you are they saying yeah we want to be regulated please please get the government to regulate us there are a lot, yes. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I um, haven't done a comprehensive study. However, many of our members are very pro-regulation. Uh, the reason being that a, a lot of people have gone to school and got the proper training, and so they'll drop yeah. between fifteen dollars and $20,000 on a proper education, um, you know, open up a real business in a real location with an actual business license, and, and perform their job with a degree of pride and professionalism that, you know, they've worked hard for and paid money for. Well, then some YouTube uh, kid comes along and self-trains and opens up in their basement without a business license and, and starts, um, 
competing with them, but not so much competing with them, but really performing the craft uh, and the trade without any proper attention to, to the safety of the client. What kind of training do people get now? If, if, you know, if you go to a beauty salon or a spa or something like that, or what kind of reasonable confidence can, you, can a consumer have that the person treating them has been trained properly? Wow, that's a great question. You know, unfortunately, there's no real, um, there's no real place for people to actually go ahead and say, "Can I see the license on the wall?" Right. The same the way, you know, if you were to walk into a dentist, where's your, <laughs> where's your stuff up on the wall? Where are your uh, 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 certificates? And and how do I know that you are actually went to school for this stuff? There is no such thing in this in this industry at all. If you could you could go in and get a spa service and have all sorts of things done to you, and the walls don't need to have any licenses on the, on them, and there's no required certification. Um, needed by the operator whatsoever. So there, there's really no standard. What about, let's, let's say a consumer is listening to this and thinking like, wow, I want to make sure that if I'm going to a salon or a spa that I'm going to be safe, I'm not going to be injured, that the person who's working on me has got proper training and skills. Is there any way that a consumer can protect themselves in that situation? So yeah, it does get downloaded to the consumer for sure, Mike. It, yeah. it, it becomes sort of their responsibility to ask those questions uh, where did you go to school and how long have you been practicing for? And um, these are the basics. Those are the fundamentals. And, and, and generally, most people who are proud of what they do will list their education on, let's say, just as easy as their website. Um, I, I would not recommend consumers depend on Google reviews or Yelp reviews. Those are very subjective and usually uh, you know, not based on, on much research or facts. So just those basic fundamental questions. Um, we do offer certification programs and verification that that people who are in the industry who may or may not have the proper certification at least a, a certain amount of comfort to customers that you know if there's a, if they do carry our certificate of qualification they're not just making it up as they go along. All right, speaking to Greg Robbins, he's the executive director of the Beauty Council of Western Canada. They want closer regulation of the industry for spas and, and salons. What kind of uh, regulation would you like to see? Mandatory training, licensing? How would it work? Yes, mandatory training um, would be would be the step one, and that typically is involves at least fifteen hundred hours of of educate, combined education and what's called an apprenticeship program. So kind of similar to what you might see, let's say, with plumbers or electricians. Um, and then a graduated system up and out of, uh, you know, the student level into a junior, into a junior role, uh, usually around one or two years, and then sort of finally off you go and, and, and do your thing. So uh, along the lines of other trades where we know that the person who's wiring a building or plumbing a building is reasonably competent to get the job done without jeopardizing the safety of anybody, you know, in, in the future. Right, right. Yeah. Would it increase prices to the consumer? I mean, if a business has to go through licensing, what they might think is red tape, is that going to cost money? Do they pass that those costs on to the consumer and prices go up? The pricing was uh, $65 a year per individual, and so that would, I mean, wow. the, the, the price would be really very little. In fact, I would venture to say that the savings that insurance companies would offer properly trained uh, individuals would, would far outweigh any cost of licensing. Interesting. All right, mm. Greg, thanks for coming on to talk about it. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate it. Greg Robbins, Executive Director, the Beauty Council of Western Canada, who represents spas hair salons,